listening to Free Beers and a Movie. Nice. Hello, welcome to episode 174 of Three Beers and a Movie. I am Richard Laird and I'm with Martin Bradley. Martin, I think this might be the first time you've been on this, correct? As indeed, I've been uh, actually studying up for about two years to be okay. on, but I've never been asked and I was all ready to start a rival podcast myself. So that was <laughs> going to be good. You're always very, very welcome on this, but you are a long way away from us. We normally do this in the pub, only because of now COVID and lockdown, we can now do it via the, the joys of Zoom um, as opposed to doing it in the pub. Um, I always thought we'd get you on when it keep like a new Star Trek film come out. So I thought that would be a nice one to have you on as you are a bit, you're more of a Trekkie than you are a like, sort of Star Wars. So I thought it'd be quite good to be on for that. So we'll do a Star Trek heavy episode. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Um, but yeah, like I said, you're up in Aberdeen. How is lockdown life in Aberdeen? Uh, we had our little deal where you were all free and clear for a while and we had three weeks of missing out on uh, get out to eat out or whatever that yep, was. Yep. So we were really angry. Uh, <laughs> but we're making up for that now with a little bit of extra freedom compared to you guys. And uh, I don't like to be nasty and say, ha-ha, but we're having a wonderful time compared yep. to you at the moment. Everyone in central Scotland and west of Scotland decided to take full advantage of the eat out to eat out or the hell it's called, and now we're all pretty much been told to stay indoors for, for the next six months. I think will be the, the eventual outcome of this. We're not allowed ever to leave um, the house again without getting shot by, you know, a shock trooper. Um, so, like I said, you know, she's called Three Beers in a Movie, so are you drinking anything tonight? I am indeed. Uh, being up in Aberdeen, I stopped by the bottle shop at Brewdog, but nice. didn't actually get any Brewdog stuff. Ooh. I have the Chipotle Porter by McKellar, nice. uh, which I was having a little shot of, and it was very nice and smooth, and then had that spicy kick at the end, hence the name. I wasn't quite expecting it. I've, it's usually a coffee flavour, or you know, there's that chocolate flavour, but this was like a really spicy, dark porter, and I was really enjoying that, so that's been quite marvellous. What was the name of the, um, the brewery? McEwen? Uh, McKellar. Uh, they're a Danish uh, brewery, I believe. Um, or this actually says uh, Belgium. So <laughs> there you go. Perhaps Denmark, not. Belgium, they are essentially the same country. Uh, <laughs> it's nice of someone who drinks the sort of the darker beers, myself and Barry and, and Colin, who normally do this podcast. We are very lightweights. Uh, we tend to stick to the pale ales and the, the blondes. We don't ever really delve into the the stouts or any or porters or such like they're, they're too heavy for our little stomachs. Oh no, it's it's uh, well granted it is a six and a half percent, so we better get this uh, recorded quickly or else I'm not going to be making much sense by the end. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I've also went to the local brew dog or I had brew dog delivered to myself, um, and it is my punk IPA because why mess with a classic? As as probably brew dog will, will tell you. Um, Brewdog is essentially sponsoring this podcast now without actually knowing they're sponsoring the podcast because it's all we can actually get in the house just now. Um, <laughs> um, it's that thing, remember, like, you know, at some point in life, like your in laws and your family find out you like something. So all they ever buy you is the one thing they know you like. That So for years, when I first started dating Jill, they knew I liked Jack Daniels. So I had to end up getting like about 50 bottles of Jack Daniels over the course of like a bunch of years for Christmas and birthdays. Now, they know I like Brewdog, so every birthday, Christmas, or gift thing given is now Brewdog in some respects. So I've got a fridge full of Brewdog. 
I know that feeling uh, with me. I think it's perhaps I just don't tell people what I like. Yeah. And so it tends to just be beer and whiskey. And yeah. so I did get like a 48-pack of Brewdog uh, earlier on in lockdown just because people didn't know what else to buy me. <laughs> so I need to become a more interesting person or yeah, at least share what thing, I like. got to find more hobbies. Um, I think people used to buy me DVDs, but then they found out that they didn't know what I had and what I don't have. So they decided not to bother with that. And to be honest, I don't even know what I have and don't have half the time. So it's probably best to just stick to beer. Um, and one of the reasons why I've not had you on before, well, not had you on before, because it's just, in order to do this podcast, you have to watch some stuff, and you're not usually as up-to-date with things as myself and Colsey and Final do this. You're usually running a little bit behind, but as we are in lockdown, you have a time on your hands, so you'll be able to sort of delve into the things, the, the homework you're given um, for the podcast. And in fact, you suggested one, so that was a new wrinkle to this. Normally, I'm... Normally I'm dishing out the homework for the people to watch, but you actually suggested something to watch. That was definitely new for me. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I'd watched Arkansas uh, yeah. that we're going to talk about before yourself. Uh, to be honest, I was just flicking through Netflix and it was the first thing that was there. Yeah. And because Liam Hemsworth was in it, I thought, wow, that is going to be excellent. We'll start with the first film, which is uh, a, sequ- a sequel, which is not normally a you know, something of quality, but it's Train to Busan Presents, not Train to Busan 2, it's Train to Busan Presents Peninsula, um, directed by Sang Ho Young, who directed the first Train to Busan, and also a film called Psychokinesis recently, which you get a chance to watch, is actually pretty decent. So like I said, it's a sequel to the 2016, which I think is um, one of the best zombie films of the past, like, sort of 20 odd years. I think it's an absolutely, the first one's an absolutely brilliant zombie movie. Um, and it was interesting to see what this I'm inclined to agree. Yeah. Um, it seemed to buck the trend in the sense that it was a better, it was more than just a zombie picture. It was actually a really good, tense thriller, as much as it was a zombie movie, which is what I was hoping from this one. Um, so the plot of this one is they've opened it out. They have got, it's set four years later. Um, the Korean Peninsula has been abandoned by the human race because all the zombies are in there. But there's a bunch of guys who go back in to try and retrieve a mail truck, which is full of money that's been left behind by the former residents of Busan. And it's their job to try and get that truck out and get it back to the, the kind of gangsters. As you expect, they go in to get the truck and all hell breaks loose because if it didn't, it would be a very short movie. So they are now stuck on the, island, on, on the peninsula attempting to escape um, and get their way back home. And that's essentially it. Um, in the film, I'm going to really muddle these names, but you've got Dong Wong Gang, who plays sort of the the, 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 head, the sort of main main role, um, a very handsome gentleman, perhaps too handsome to be in a zombie film. Um, you've got Jun Hyung Lee, who plays like um, sort of female lead in the film. She plays the mother of a couple of kids in it who are needing help. Um, you've got Do Yoon Kim, who plays a sort of army. Um, what's the word for it? He's like sort of the the guy who runs the mess hall. He's sort of he's sort of an army. What's the word? Uh, uh, the, the mess, mess captain, or ah, like he's like a, very much a paper pusher um, in many ways. Yeah. Uh, Min Jae Kim plays a mercenary who's sort of the main bad guy if you don't count the zombies. And Jai Hong Koo plays the captain of the sort of a, a military base. They get they plays an important part in it. Um, so I've talked a lot so far. So like you talk, what did you think of this one overall? Um. You can see why they've not called it Train to Busan 2. You can see why they've made it this sort of episodic sort of element. Yeah, just because it's uh, 
you know, they, they've clearly got less of a budget. You can see sort of certain elements of that. And uh, I, I found it very interesting for a zombie movie where the rest of the world actually got their act together and stopped <laughs> back to the rest of the world. They managed, and and they, they, they give North Korea a lot of credit for that. They basically yeah. say the North Koreans stopped the, the worldwide zombie outbreak, yeah. by, you know, just made sure they stopped it on the peninsula, uh, which I thought was quite amusing. Yeah. Um, I, if I'm going to give my, my feelings about it to begin with, I found it very difficult to care uh, just about all of the protagonists, what was going on, the whole idea that the big motivation was about money, you know, and everyone sort of chasing after this cash. There, there are a lot of things that I just feel just didn't work for me. Maybe I've just maybe I've just become tired of zombie films, and you start to see, you know, a lot of the the, the places where the film got its motivation. You know, you can see that there's like a little bit of escape from New York in there, and yep. they've got all those sort of ideas. And it's uh, I I got some feelings about the the third uh, Living Dead film as well. Um, forgetting the name of it now. David. Uh, Day of the Dead, yeah, yeah. I just have that, you know, and, and some ideas just about the, the sort of the military aspect and how things have just like you've got this group, this military esque group who just aren't managing things very well and they've got it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure where to go from there. I think the main protagonist just, uh, I really struggled to care about his motivations. Things seem very, you know, accidental about the way that he yeah. uh, meets up with the. Uh, the family that he left behind yeah, as he tried to escape with his own yeah, family. And, uh, and that all seems quite uh, just not boring, but I did have to watch it in three different parts. Right, okay. uh, you, know, I, you know, over three days. And I think that maybe says something to me as well when I'm so keen to watch movies at the moment. Yeah. I don't know how you felt about that. I, I don't necessarily disagree with anything you're saying. I think the biggest problem with it is, not biggest problem, the biggest sort of damning restraint page I can say about it is, it's it's a very generic zombie film, and it's not a bad zombie film. It's, it's probably, I've seen a lot worse in terms of zombie films, but as soon as you put even just a hint of Train to, Train to Busan on it, even presents or even the same director as the Train to Busan, there's a certain like expectation of what that film was and what this film was, and this became just a generic sort of, movie it wasn't nothing about it felt special there's some nice visual touches like he's obviously quite a flair for sort of the imagery because there's a couple of really cool shots like the scene with the the zombies i think it's like they're in a shopping center on an, on an escalator and the, and the moon comes out yep. and see that behind the glass that was really cool and it's some really nice moments like that it's like sort of visually look pretty smart but the film itself it, it, not a bad film by any stretch, but just very generic zombie film. Same like there's Escape from New York in there. There's a bit of Mad Max with the car chases. I kind of like the Carmageddon-esque of the, the car stuff. Like, as a fan of that old video game, it felt that felt, you know, what it was like. Um, the leads, I'm, I'm much the same as yourself. I, I, the, the, no one was bad in the film. Um, everyone is playing the role they're supposed to play, and they play it well. Um, some of the, the action scenes with the, um, like, sort of, the escaping the zombies and the fighting the zombies all looked great. Nothing about it looked bad. But I think there's just that expectation when you put Train to Busan on something, you're going to get something, if not the same, but akin to what we saw first time around, and this definitely didn't have it. I was interested when you said it felt it was a much lower budget. I thought this had a lot more money thrown in it, but the money wasn't as well used. Um, 
either have run out, either have, either have went too big. Maybe there's probably about, maybe about twenty percent too much story in this. If they just trimmed it down to make it more of a make it more of a escape from New York type story and just do it that way, and um, it might work a little bit better. But you're throwing in stuff about the family, you're throwing in stuff about this. There's the the military guys try to go off the island. The military guy try to stay on the island. Then you get all, and then you get the the grandfather is dealing with someone in the radio and stuff like that as well. There's just a lot of plot points that all kind of felt all over the place. And I feel like it could, if it streamlined it a little bit, maybe the money could have went and made it look better. But I, I think it, I think it's did have a bigger budget than than uh, Train to Busan, so it's just maybe not as well spent as um, uh, the original. Yeah, I, I can see actually what you mean when you say that, and, and you're probably right. I think what really caught me, uh, I like the idea of the car chases and, like you said, that Carmageddon sort of style element yeah. to it. But because the, the, the car chases were 100% CGI. Yes, it looked very fake. In a post Mad Max world, you can, like Mad Max Fury Road world, bad car chases are something you now notice. Uh, it's like bad CGI. You know, bad CGI is one thing, but you know this can be done for real. Even Fast and the Furious, there's a lot of shit for real. You know, there's a shop somewhere in Glasgow, I know that for a fact. You know, so when you're watching it and you go, you could have done something with that to make it look a bit more realistic, you know, to make it feel more in it, but you feel very detached. It felt more like a video game cutscene at times rather than like a movie. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's exactly my feeling about it. And uh, so, yeah, like you say, because it maybe stretched the budget, they just didn't have the cash to quite make that work. The physics of cars just yeah. wasn't quite working, you know, and yeah. when they have a, a an 11-year-old driving a car and doing these crazy stunts yeah. and, you know, tiny enclosed spaces, and I, I love the idea of yeah. that, but it just didn't uh, I really like the two kids, so I thought the two kids were awesome, and I really enjoyed the two kids. I thought they were really fun, and they brought a lot of energy to it. They were, they were really good, just... The role within it felt a bit strange, but I thought what they'd done, I thought everyone in the film I thought done really well, but just, just not enough story for everyone to have. They could really cut some of the story out and that made it a lot more interesting to myself. Yeah, and that's, it's one of those things that you can say because of Train to the Busan and the sort of high concept element of that is very simple. It's yeah. like, you know, zombies on a train. They could have yeah. called it that, and no one would have watched it because it would have sounded terrible. But, <laughs> but that, that's that's exactly exactly it. And like you say, I, again, I thought the director did really well with uh, that that part with uh, the the overpass, the glass overpass. Yeah. I thought that was you know that was really striking. He really tried to do something with uh, the the some gladiatorial element of uh, you know send it back. I've seen that before. That's, that been done in, that's been done in so many zombie films. Idea, and even done in the Walking Dead comic. It's done in the Walking Dead TV show. It's been done in like Day of the yeah. Dead, to some extent. Done it in Land of the Dead. That felt lazy. Whereas Training the Sand felt somewhat original, even though it is still a zombie film. This didn't have any originality in it. It felt like it's, it's all just taking so many elements and just sort of bastardizing into one. Um, and I feel you could, I feel you could sit someone down and convince a non-zombie fan to watch Train to Busan. But I don't think, and we probably still enjoy it. Whereas I don't think you could convince a non-zombie fan to watch this and enjoy it. I think this is very much just a genre piece, a good genre piece, totally passable and, be- and way better than a lot of them, but not in any way um, like sort of worthy of the train to design title. In fact, there's a better one on Netflix just now called um, Hashtag Alive. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. It's it's a, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's a Korean, um, and I think it's an Austrian zombie flick, and it's about, it's all set in like a it's a guy based in, in a, 
a flat watching the zombie apocalypse unfold beneath him because he's like sort of this sort of very introverted millennial who has everything at his disposal in his house, doesn't need to leave the house. That was a far more interesting version of the zombie film than this one was, um, I would say. Interesting. Um, so have a look at that one, it's called Hashtag Once. So it's generally very, very good. We, we, we both, me and Barry both very much enjoyed it. And he's not a horror fan. Um, now on this, we rate films out of 10. You can give them point something figures uh, answers as well. So what would you give out of 10? Uh, I would have to go below five. I, I, I would give it a four. Oh, harsh. Very <laughs> harsh. Um, it's a decent genre for like, I'd give it six and a half out of 10. It's, it's definitely a good solid. As a fan of a zombie film, this is one I'd watch before a lot of ones I've seen recently. I've seen some real clunkers of late. Because like, like any horror and zombie can be done so cheaply, they can be done so badly. This is not badly done. It's just maybe, maybe, maybe overreached. Just overreached a little bit. Maybe if they do it again, they might bring it back down to a more sort of macro level as opposed to try to go you know, so big with it. Um, so six and a half out of ten. It's available on Shudder, if you have Shudder, but I think it's only in the Korean Shudder. You can get it on, so you will need a very good VPN in order to access it just now, um, if you're looking for it. I think, I think it comes to the British or Western um, Shudder uh, app as of, I think it's January or February um, 2021. Um, it is also in cinemas. If you happen to have a open cinema near you, so I think there might be, if there's one in Aberdeen that's not a cinema world, maybe an Odeon that's open, it might nothing open at all. Yeah, all closed. all closed. I know it's shown in the yeah. Isle of Man, I know that. So if you're an Isle of Man, you can <laughs> uh, train to Bazan too. And so on from that, we go to uh, Netflix with the film that you recommended, which was Arkansas, or Arkansas, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, uh, directed by Clark Duke. Uh, it's his debut feature. He's done some TV before, but he's probably better known as an actor. Um, this film, it's, let's try to find the plot of this film. It's uh, the two drug dealers trying to rise up the ranks um, of the drug empire. Um, achieving it and not achieving it purely by, it seems, accident. And they're not, they're not, it's not a conscious effort a lot of the time. They just sort of, it's just, um, basically try to build their way up and try to discover who the kingpin of the drug empire is in order that they can in some way be betrothed to him and either to help him or to take over his, his role. That would be essentially it, yeah? That's essentially it? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there, there's an element of the, the modular manner in which a drug empire is made yes. just means that the lack of communication means that no one has any idea what's actually yes. going on. They're at the very bottom of the rung and they only, they only speak to the person one rung above them and they're trying to figure a way to, to get higher up it. Um, in the film, you've got uh, Liam Hemsworth, who's everyone's second favourite Hemsworth, even his mother. He's not the favourite <laughs> Hemsworth the mother. Um, you've got Clark Duke, um, so directing and writing um, duties, and also being the second lead. Um, you've got Michael K. Williams, a chalky from Boardwalk Empire, or he's also in The Wire, isn't he, as well? Um, Michael K. Williams, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I've not seen The Wire. I know from Boardwalk Empire. Um, Vince Vaughn is now in everything that has a darker tone to it. He pursues to become a serious actor. Um, John Malkovich in another and John Malkovich role. And Eden Brolin, who is Josh Brolin's daughter and has unfortunately been gifted with his jawline, which is a bit of a shame for, for Eden Brolin. Um, but she's in the film. She's actually pretty good. Um, I'm going to start with this one. I was not enamoured by this film that much. Um, it is a crime thriller that has thinks it's a lot smarter than it actually is. 
it, it, it believes it's it's been clever, it's been witty. It's Clark Duke when he's adapting the book. I think he's seen Pulp Fiction way too many times and thinks he's writing the next Pulp Fiction. In reality, he's definitely not writing the Pulp Fiction. And the chapter structure they have on it just doesn't work for me. It just it, it felt made it feel far too um, sort of uh, cut up and broken. It didn't feel like it ever like, came together properly. Um, and kind of like Trading the Sand a little bit, there's a, only well, this one's worse, it's got about 70% too much story. Um, you could lose a good half of this film and streamline what they've got and make a much more interesting movie. Um, and because of that, nothing really sort of hits you that hard, you know, because like the Vince Vaughn character in the film, he's essentially almost like a, a Walter White, you know, he's sort of the Breaking Bad type, you know, the, the Cranston character on that, but they never really explored how he gets, how he really goes from his level. That they try to tell two parallel stories without really telling either of them particularly well. Um, and I think the biggest problem I had was, was there's literally no chemistry between the two leads. Like nothing about them made me feel that was a proper friendship or any sort of like back and forth on set. It, it felt like people just, it felt like actors reading lines as opposed to any sort of like cohesion between the two of them. So I just I didn't I didn't buy into it at all, um, unfortunately. Um, yeah. It's not bad. It's just very blah, in my opinion. What about yourself? Uh, I've got to. I, I can't disagree with anything that you said. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if perhaps I had had a couple of beers on that evening as well. Just, you know, didn't didn't really care that some of the the chapters didn't quite marry up because, like you say, it goes through maybe about five chapters in each one, there's such a, a, a jarring uh, difference between what's going on in each one, you know, and, and you don't really ever feel like that's what you expected, not in a good way, you know, yeah. just like, like uh, and um, and that, that's very, very difficult. Um, like you say about uh, Vince Bond's character and the idea that you want to know how he rose to the top of this drug empire yeah. and you might see how he gets in charge of what's going on yeah. but not how he expands like yeah. in, in the way that, that you might expect and the, 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 one thing Vince, the idea that Vince Vaughn is the head of the drug empire is not something that's revealed late on as a sort of reveal it's sort of it's put out quite up front and I'm thinking that could have been something you could have maybe built towards and maybe used later on you know because the only people who don't know who he is are the two leads Essentially, like we know who Vince Vaughn is in this film, so that becomes like, oh, that's it's, it. All you do is really wait for them to figure out who he is, and it's that became kind of boring after a while. I think they wanted that to be a big reveal and just didn't write it very well. Yeah, I think, uh, I think so they too, wanted yeah. it to be a twist. They did, and it's like this because they, they play it like a twist. Oh, but but twenty minutes before, we already knew who he was, yeah, and it was yeah. very very weird that way. It does seem um, maybe like the what, chapter structure they put into it might have been something that wasn't in the script, but they've, they've filmed it maybe more as a sort of a, just a normal narrative. And then they've, then they've done the chapter structure because they couldn't find a way to put Because if they go back in time to tell like the old, like the backstory of Vince Vaughn to an extent, to some, not all of it, a little bit of it. And they couldn't find a way to structure that into it without maybe just doing flashbacks. So they do this whole chapter structure. So I think maybe the film was shot as one thing in, in the in the edit room, they've put it together in a different way to try and add a cohesion to it, but I don't think they succeeded very well. 
it, it could have been. I mean, personally, I could have done without the whole historical thing about Vince Vaughn's character entirely, yeah. but because he's such a big name, they needed to and perhaps involve him a little bit more with yeah. that and, and give him more to do. Uh, the, the one thing that I was really that I really enjoyed was uh, as much as it was an and John Malkovich film, yeah, he tried and he I does. really enjoyed him. And that's the thing with Malkovich just now. Malkovich is just doing these films like one a week now. He is doing the and yeah. John Malkovich role in pretty much everything this now. I've seen he was in I'm gonna check his IMDb. He's done it at least like a good half dozen of these in the past like couple of years where he's in it for maybe ten minutes. He's He's John Malkovich, so he's always very entertaining because that's who John Malkovich is. But you feel like he's a guy who should be getting more roles where he's sort of a lead. He's like sort of given more, like more. Yeah. Because I think the worst and John Malkovich film that I've ever seen was uh, the Mutant Chronicles. And I don't yes, know if you've ever seen that. I have. But he he absolutely is is the worst. He's asleep. For that entire <laughs> film, and he's in it for about twenty minutes. But it's uh, so that that's an example of him not trying. So he was definitely trying in this. He was in um, Ava. Uh, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, one with um, Jessica Chastain, which I thought was an average. He was again in that as an and John Malkovich, Velvet Bob's Buzzsaw as well. He played the judge in extremely wicked and shockingly in Vile. If you saw Evil and Vile, sorry, it was the one about um, Jeffrey Dalmer. He played oh. the judge in that. He's actually very good in that. But he pops up in Bird Box, okay. Mile 22, Bullethead, you know, literally his entire screen time in all these films could maybe amount to a movie in the last like 20, of the last 20 films, maybe it amount to one movie. He just, I feel, I don't know why he's sort of content with these and John Malkovich roles. Um, also annoyed that they have Michael K. Williams in it and literally have him in one scene because he's, everything he's always in, he's always fantastic. And like, why waste an act like that in one scene? It seems it's such a waste. Um, did you notice they had the guy from Starship Troopers in it? I the thing is, I read that he was in it later, but I didn't recognise him I in did, the I film. So I'm looking out for him. One of the twins when he grew up, but it's not him. He plays somebody called Joe in it, and I couldn't think who that was. Yeah, Patrick um, Muldoon. Patrick Muldoon, yes. That's a man. I couldn't find him in the film, but he's in it. So I'm glad to see he's still getting work. I'm just, you know, because he deserves to get some work. <laughs> um. What would say about this film? I think one of the biggest problems with the film might have been the Clark Duke um, having directing, writing, and acting duties. I feel in sort of more assured hands, this could have been a sort of decent crime thriller. You know, sort of maybe a bit more black humour, a bit more noirish. Possibly a guy like Ryan Johnson, who done like Knives Out and um, and Brick, you know, that kind of stuff. He can maybe have done more to this. You know, some somebody like that could brought more to it than, than he did. It felt like for a first feature it felt a little bit ambitious with what he was trying to pull off yeah yeah i agree and there, there were lots of little things that made me uncomfortable about it i think uh, clark duke's character's a uh, romance with uh, eden broden's car- character went along the lines of uh, stalking is romantic well, also, and that was uh, not yeah. at all plausible because like, you look at it and go she's an option between a hemsworth or clark duke and even a he- even it's the second hemsworth it's still a hemsworth god damn it it was like a ball when you still take the ball over anybody else so I feel like yes. I hard to even pick him. And I thought at one point there's a scene with the two, then you have Hemsworth and um, Ethan Brolin together at one point, it's just the two of them. I thought there was something going to happen there between them that might have been sort of, that would have caused friction within the sort of the trilogy of them three. But nothing happened. Yeah, they, they were trying to sell Hemsworth's character as uh, 
not not essentially a loner, but almost like a bit of a sociopath. Yeah. And that's why he was well suited to the to the job uh-huh. of being a drug dealer. And but but Hemsworth doesn't have the range to pull that off properly. So he, he just seems like a bit of a he's like seen like a Labrador is scary. He's like he looks like a puppy, you know, there's no there's no vengeance in those eyes at all. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed Arkansas, but it, it wasn't a good film, and no. that's 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 the issue with it. Yeah, um, out of ten, I'm giving it five and a half. Hope yourself. Uh, I was going to give it a six because I had fun. You had fun. Fair enough. A couple of drinks in, you can enjoy. It is actually one of those films after four or five drinks, it might wave a lot better because um, you're not really thinking about it quite as much. Um, <laughs> And probably something like Netflix, which Netflix is essentially now the straight-to-video thing we used to always have as kids, and you used to go, you know, stuff that just didn't go to cinema. So Netflix is essentially that now, and it does feel very much like a straight-to-video movie. You know, you wouldn't want to pay 20 quid to go to the cinema to see it, but you would sit at home and watch it on a Sunday night. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly where it sits in, oh. in the movie ladder at the moment. And there's nothing wrong with a, a straight-to-video film. There's, there's very there's excellent... Films that come out of that world, you know, and it's, it's just because I think Sam is not necessarily a, a knock against it. There's some real quality to be found going straight to video. Um, on from that, we're going on to a film called Mangrove, which is on the BBC iPlayer. It's part of the Small Axe series that um, Steve McQueen is doing. He is basically putting everyone else to shame um, by doing... Uh, he's done five feature films that will be released over the next five weeks on the BBC. So his... Content is um, epic. It's on a different level from everyone else. You know, he's he done Widows, what, two or three years ago? And now he's doing this. So um, it's pretty impressive. Um, so Steve McQueen done films like Widows. Uh, he done Shame, uh, one with Michael Fassbender. He done Hunger, um, the one about the IRA uh, Hunger Strikes. And he also done 12 Years a Slave, which I don't think he won the Oscar for. I can't remember if he did or not. I feel like he did win it, but I'm not 100% sure if he won that. Or if that was ignored. And that's, you know, one of the, like a, a damning condemnation of the Oscar. Yeah, I think I think the actors did well at the Oscar, but I'm not sure if the film did. I'll need to have yeah. a look at that, actually. I don't remember. It made one of those ones, you know, when it's like, you know, when that's sort of one of the turning points, when that film gets ignored for something very, very white, you know, I'm guessing. Um, you know, and then end up giving the award to Green Book for, for reasons that were never really truly understood. Ah, uh, yeah. It did win. So it did win three Oscars. It won Best Motion Picture, it won Best Actress, oh. and it won Adapted Screenplay. He okay, was, well, fair enough then. It did okay. He was nominated for things, but he wasn't, um, he didn't win that one. But still, he won some, won some Oscars. So he is a filmmaker of, of real note, um, and always very interesting filmmaker. So not, I've listened to a few interviews with him. He's not a man of comedy, he's a very serious man. Um, I think he won, he also won that prize, what's the big art house prize, the Turner Prize? Yeah, that would be one. I think it's one, see one, remember the video of the house falling, with the guy in the house, and it goes through the window, and he's like, sort of, he's done like a visual art of that or something, I can't remember, you have to look it up, but he was, he won the Turner Prize, I'm sure, as well, before he got done for directing as well, so, he's a very That's serious man. with me. Yeah, a very serious man. Um, so the plot of this one is... It is set in the 1970s in, uh, in London, where there's a local restaurant called The Mangrove, where um, the, the black community, the West Indian community, sort of meet and congregate, and they 
party and they gamble and they do all sorts of things there. But it's been basically targeted by the police um, who want to shut it down and want to cause problems for the owner because of what they see is sort of illicit behaviour there. And it sort of becomes a, a real focal point for the the police to sort of keep the black population in the, that part of London down. Um, they're beca- they're, it leads to a protest that turns into a riot, um, according to the police, and nine members of the people who go to the mangrove are put up in court and charged with, it's called, was it rioting in a fray, which is something that's never actually been put into, into law at any point. Uh, and they defend, they try and defend themselves against these um, accusations and at the same time try to expose the British state as being a um, corrupt, racist um, police force who are out to sort of basically harm the, the local population of, uh, of immigrants. Um, based on a true story, so if, you, if there are spoilers out there, you can obviously have a look and find them. Um, really, I'm really happy to see this on BBC rather than anybody. It's on BBC iPlayer, so that was, that was awesome, rather than having to go to cinema. It's really nice that it's on sort of national television. Um, what do you think of this one? Uh, to be honest, I think we're, we're, we've talked about two films that were uh, straight-to-video uh, sort of style films. Yeah. And this is something, if the movies were still open, it would have certainly deserved a, a cinema release. Agreed, absolutely, uh, 100%, yes. Yeah, and uh, although, of course, uh, Steve McQueen's making the, the Small Axe uh, series of films, and uh, yeah. I've seen a lot of uh, very big... Uh, actors and actresses are uh, going to be involved. I think uh, John Boyega is going to be in the next He's one. He's not this week's one, but next week's one. Ah, and uh, here you had uh, Letitia Wright. Letitia Wright. Uh, he yeah. wasn't playing not the main character there, uh, but uh, so that was certainly interesting. But the entire, I'm embarrassed to say that I have never heard of this case. Neither I've that. I actually knew more about this, the trial. I watched the trial of Chicago 7 recently. Um, and actually, yeah. that case than I did about this case, which is really a detriment to myself. And um, I didn't know enough about you know, Britain's history, but yeah, I didn't know anything about it either. Yeah, and so I took it as a as a as a, a history lesson as, yeah. as well as a piece of entertainment, and, and and that's very much what it's designed to be. You know that that that's kind of the point because yeah. we we were at school in the nineties, and this this wasn't our history class. You know, if we learn yeah. about the British Empire, then we were taught about how great it was that Britain had this empire. Essentially, you know, well, essentially in school, we get World War II, Bannockburn, Battle of Stirling Bridge, and then you're sent on your way, essentially. There's, everything else is sort of not really worried about, and this is something that's yeah. messed out. And, and so, you know, the, the nature of the story is being about the West Indian community and the fact that they were encouraged to, to come to Britain and, uh, you know, find work and find a new life and uh, being discriminated against so intensely by yeah. so many elements of government and, and the, the system that worked against them uh, was was upsetting for, yeah. for, for, for me to, to see that, to see that. And, um, you know, so that was, um, I, I, I really just thought it was excellent. I, I thought they did very well. And, uh, not making the protagonists um, these pure characters, making sure that we saw their flaws as much as their yeah. uh, their strengths. Yeah. Um, and the, the main character played by uh, Sean Parks, who I thought was absolutely excellent. He was, he was. Yep. Um, 
he's been beaten. He seems like a guy who's been beaten down enough. He doesn't want to do this anymore. He, he, he feels like he, he, from, at the start of the film anyway, I think he's a guy who's he's had enough. You know, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to be a leader. He doesn't want to be the focal point of this thing. But sort of the way history and the way things unfold, he's sort of forced to become a sort of a more of a leader of the community. Whereas the Letitia Wright character, she plays sort of the leader of the Black Panthers in Britain. She seems more primed to be the leader, and she's almost wanting to embrace this. And she sees what happens in the courtroom case as for what it can be, which is like sort of a a, a soapbox in order to, to use it. But as um, Sean Packers, it doesn't really seem like he's really wanting to be that role. He, he, he'd, be, he'd be much happier just letting this go, not go away, but he just wants to get his life back. He doesn't want to make it a big deal, essentially, from what I've got. But then as the film goes on, it obviously that changes. Um, one of the things I thought was really yeah. nice to see on it, and you don't really see a lot of it on the film a lot, is the first half of this film, there's a real sense of like West Indian and black like joy on screen. It's not just portraying life as like sort of shitty and hard. It's shown that people in these communities they love life and they love you know they're they're, they're eating, they're drinking, they're having fun, they're, they're you know they're, they're enjoying life, and that's something you don't really get a lot of in film. It like particularly in Steve McQueen's films, his film is about you know about the lives of people black or black. Basically, essentially becomes about the pain and hardship. If you think about things like Widows that they're, they're all suffering. If you think of it, something like Twelve Years a Slave, that kind of focuses very primarily on the sort of the, how much suffering there was. This obviously has how they've suffered as well in it, but it does at the very start at least bring in the idea of like this, that they want to enjoy life, and, and I thought that was really important to bring that in at the very start of the film. Yeah, and I thought that was uh, the, the sense of community. You could see how, um, and I'm not sure if I'm saying this name right. I'll apologise, but. Uh, Roshenda Sandal's character, yeah. uh, who is um, clearly someone who has, uh, you know, uh, the film uh, shows that she's uh, a person who's been in care when she was younger in the care system, and she's come through and discovered this community, and this is, oh. you know, she's found a new sense of life through mm. the joy that's in this community, and you can yeah. see that, and also, you can see that... she's not accepted you, fully by the community either, because she's she has sort of... Um, yeah, she's yeah, um, and that's yeah. She has uh, one of her parents were were white essentially, and you can oh. see how that's like. So she's she struggled to find that acceptance in in, in any community. Yeah. But but this one is you know so she's probably one of the people who's most hurt by what's happened on a personal level. Yeah. Because she sees that that's been taken away from her, and she's probably one of the after Letitia Wright's character. She's the, the most. Uh, Sort of resilient activist, yeah, in, yeah. in that group and, and things like that. And, and she's played very, very well. Uh, that's uh, an actress who I've seen in uh, the recent series uh, Criminal, which oh, okay. uh, you've also seen on Netflix as well. And uh, I thought she was uh, absolutely fantastic. But um, it, again, it's you can see that that's what they're trying to, uh, what McQueen's trying to really bring through is that, that sense of community and how strong that is. And we're not just talking about you know, the black community or the West Indian community, you can just see how people enjoy being with their friends and, yeah. and with these people. And, and then the mangrove where, you know, they talk about, you know, there's, you know, intellectuals go there to, oh. you know, like talk about what their what their future is, you know, and uh, how they can really sort of talk about that. And uh, it's it seems like an exciting time to have been there. But obviously there was a lot of conflict. 
And yeah. that's that's what this is all about. I thought um, as well, Sam Sproul, who plays the cop, um, the main police officer, I thought he was, he's utterly despicable, but I thought he played it very well. I thought his, he, he believed every ounce of him as this really just sick, degenerate man. Um, he reminded me slightly yeah. of, again, we'll go back to Starship Troopers, see the guy in, who's also in, Clancy Brown, who's also in um, Shawshank Redemption. Ah, Clancy, he did remind me of Clancy Brown, yeah. That kind of just real sort of loving the, even the, the small semblance of power he has, you know, and he knows that the power he has over these people, because he knows if, if they were to sort of attack him for what he's doing, it would only come down on them, so he knows this and he, he uses that. Um, I like Jack Loudon as well, I feel he could have done more in it, unfortunately, I really like him as an actor, he's done some really good and interesting stuff, but I felt his role as the uh, defence attorney um, ah. was very generic, it didn't feel like he had much to do and it. it just felt like he was just sort of standing up and saying, I agree a lot of the time, didn't really have much in the film, which I guess is not yeah. the point of the film is the majority of these guys defend themselves, which I thought was a, um, a really interesting twist, um, which is, if you compare it to... Um, the Trial of Chicago 7, have you watched that yet? I haven't yet, and, and it seems like there's a, a similarity there, but I, I won't be able to talk about that because I've, no. I've not seen it. There's an interesting, interesting point in that was a, as a black um, activist in that one, and he's not allowed to speak for himself. Like, literally to the point where he is gagged in the courtroom um, to stop him actually, and this actually happened, he was actually gagged and bound in the courtroom in the 1960s in America, and he was not allowed to speak on his own behalf. So to actually see, you know, as much as Britain is a very, so they always say we're quite, you know, backward and not backward, sort of stuck in the olden times, stuck in sort of like the 1900s, they did allow the, the, the black activists to speak, which to me felt very strange. Obviously, there's no public gallery, so that was a bit, for a lot of it, so that was obviously they're trying to limit how many people can hear what they're speaking about. But the fact they allowed yeah. it was sort of like, compared to the American version of this, which happened like sort of 10 years before it, like, holy shit, like Britain's even more forward thinking in America, which it seems nuts. And the, and the mindset is sort of you think the opposite. Yeah, I, I, I would go for we were less backward thinking rather than more forward thinking. Yes, this is a think very, very, very small yeah. win. Yeah. <laughs> we were still super racist, yeah. but yeah, sorry, yeah, definitely not forward thinking, definitely backward thinking. Um, I did like that all the actors in it or all the characters in it were given a moment to some degree and they're not. They don't become caricatures, like you said. They all have. You can, there's always motivation for all of them. Um, and you, I think also as well, just important thing. It's an important film for now, you know, because we've got to, people got to realize that the whole the Black Lives Matter um, thing that's kicked off in the last sort of like nine months. That's not in response to one thing that happened nine months ago. This is a sort of it's systemic, you know, bred in racism that's been real for the last you know 200, 300 years. So. It's more than just something that's happened in the past, you know, six months. So films like this do show that this is something that's, that's always been there. And, it, and you can see, you can understand the anger that is out there still because of it, because, you know, it's just constantly been kept down by the arm of the law. So I think it's, again, really important film for now. And the, the code at the end, the fact that police have not apologised for this at any point, that just seems so, like, you know you've done wrong, just admit you've done wrong. Yeah, and uh, and Frank Critchlow, uh, the the owner of the Mangrove, uh, said that he was dealing with uh, issues from the police for another eighteen years afterwards. <laughs> you know, so that that wasn't end of the story. He no. was, he didn't have a happy life after this. He no, suffered. And you feel uh, like he, 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 he,
it stayed open to like ninety two, I think it was. It says in the coda, and it's sort of like imagine those like those like sort of eighteen years in between it were just were tough. I can't imagine he lived there. I hope he's living a happier life now and sort of a more peaceful life now, because it felt probably over the last the eighteen years that happened, it was not an easy life for him. Yeah, but uh, but overall, just uh, a really it was just a a sturdy, well told story, and like you say, because they're. The, the caricatures weren't there. It, it feels like you were told the truth of what yeah. happened to some yeah. extent. Although I do feel that uh, PC Pulley, uh, Sam Spurrell's character, was perhaps a, you know, big because of he was a caricature of the antagonist. I wonder if maybe he was an amalgamation of a number think, of different yes, police I, characters. I yeah. I would agree. I would agree. I think he probably, I think people at the police force do exist, particularly back then. Um, yeah. I think yeah, he was definitely sort of he just sort of he became the sort of focal point of the um the sort of the, the establishment in the state. That's what that's sort of what, what he was. Um, but yeah, he did seem like a very much a caricature not a caricature, but sort of an amalgamation of different characters, different people. Um out of ten, what are you giving this one? Uh, I'm gonna give that an eight. Yeah, same solid nine for myself at nine out of ten. I think what you said at the start is definitely hundred percent true. This film deserves to be seen in a cinema. But being on a BBC iPlayer, maybe it'll be seen by a bigger audience than it would have been if it was in the cinema, even in a, even in a non-COVID year. You know, so that's something to be said for that. A film that like this will get seen, um, and they could easily use this in schools because there's nothing particularly. There's no sex or bad language really in it. It's sort of it, it, it's it's telling a story without being particularly, you know, offensive. I think I think it's laying out broad facts and sort of, and, and showing it properly. So I feel like it's something that could be used in schools. I, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope they've sto- they've told the story properly. I'd yeah. like to see a wee fact check done on it at some yes. point to, to see exactly what happened and what didn't, and I'd be keen to, to understand. But I'm I'm certainly going to do a bit of study on it myself. Yeah, that's the biggest issue should. with um, Crash Chicago 7. Enjoyed the film because Aaron Sorkin writing it, um, but a little bit quick digging realises that um, most of the story is Aaron Sorkin's interpretation of reality, which is not always how reality is. So um, it, it, yeah. a lot was, a lot was, the broad strokes are there, but the the points that make it more important were, were glanced over in order to make it less, make it more cinematic in his writing. And um, yeah, so that is us for this week. So thank you very much, Martin. Next week we have um, Lover's Rock, which is the second part of Steve McQueen's um, Small Axe Quintilogy. Um, so, that we talked about him. I've seen that. Have you seen it? Is it good? Uh, yeah, it's it's not a not a big movie. It's about an hour and ten minutes. Nice. It's uh, set over one evening, and it's it's lovely. Lovely. That's it's, nice. it's really... that, yeah, that's all I'll say. I'll let you talk about it next week. Very much looking forward to it. Um, the one with John Boyega is the one that's on this week. Then sorry, I think we were a week behind. So the one that's coming out, the next one that's out will be the John Boyega one. Okay. Sure. Um, we've also got on Netflix. You'll have Mank which is about the making of Citizen Kane, coming from the mind of David Fincher, which I am exceptionally excited about. Um, and it's got Gary Oldman looking absolutely fucking deranged in it, um, which is always good to see. Uh, and also, apparently the most watched show on Netflix ever, um, The Queen's Gambit, which um, I've started watching and Barry started watching as well. So apparently it's the most watched, it's higher ratings in The Crown, higher ratings in Stranger Things, everything. Um, something like 67 million households started watching The Queen's Gambit. But yet, I have not found a single person who has watched it yet. So that maybe tells you a lot about Netflix's algorithm um, when it comes down to it. 
Um, have you watched Queen's Gambit by any chance? <laughs> I haven't, no. I know uh, that uh, Anna Taylor-Joy is the main yes. character in that. Yeah. And uh, she's been great in a lot of stuff. But uh, I've seen the trailer and it seems interesting. I don't... Yeah. The, the trailer makes it like they're trying to sex up chest and it seems a bit odd. But uh, it, it might be good. It might, might be, good. be silly. Yeah. I don't know. The thing, is, the thing I found out very quickly part about it that's put me right... Not right off it, but it's maybe... Put in, coming in, coming in a slight low about it is it's not a true story. Like it's all. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's it basically, looks like it's based on a true story kind of thing. No, no, it's um, it's based, <laughs> it's based on a book. Apparently, a very well known book if you're into, you know, um, maybe chess in some way. But apparently, it's a very well known book. Um, but yeah, so it's not a true story. So I'm like, oh, this is so. I basically, you go so any sort of insane twist it's going to take. I'm going to go. Well, that's bullshit. That would never happen. Whereas in real life, you know, like the Bobby Fisher story. You have to watch that, and it's hard to believe because of that you know it's true. And um, so, we're talking about all them next week. So, hopefully, Queen's Gambit delivers. I'm, I'm intrigued to see what it does. Um, other than that, if you want to find us, we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Three Beers in a Movie. Uh, and for this week, I've been Richard, you've been I've been Martin, and you've been listening to Three Beers in a Movie.